Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Joining me today is our medical director, Dr. Rob Dixon. Good afternoon. Kevin Crocker's man in the board for us. Thank you, Kevin. Today, we're going to talk about an enormous topic, lots of subject matter. To try to boil it down into a framework, it may end up being a two-part podcast, but we're going to talk about pre-hospital care of the pregnant patient. And this is going to be part of our Back back to Basics, or our B2B series, where we really hit the basics of the subject matter that we're talking on. But before we get started today, Dr. Dixon has a couple excellent <laughs> stories that I want him to lead off with, because I really think they're useful from the standpoint of obstetric care in the pre-hospital environment, in the emergency care environment can be really unpredictable. And um, I think his stories really illustrate that and are a good place for us to start. Yeah, they, he's in, uh, he and Kevin are enjoying me like cowering and quivering in my seat over here as we even look at this topic, because I'll be honest with you, these patients scare me to death. You know, I was a firefighter and a paramedic for uh, years before I came, uh, went to medical school and became a doctor. And I will tell you, in all my training as a doctor, you know, you go through the medical school thing and you deliver lots of babies on the OB service. And then when you're a resident doctor or a training doctor, you know, you go and do your delivery. So I did a fair amount during training, but I've been out of training for a number of years now. And I will tell you, I have not delivered one baby in that time, and I delivered more babies on the ambulance as a fireman than I have since I came out of residency training with uh, Dr. Patrick at IU. These, these patients terrified me. I'll give you a, a story of how quickly I offload these patients to someone else. Uh, I, had, I was working a night shift in uh, East Texas probably about 10 years ago. One of my best like most experienced nurses, was up triaging, and I see this slip, you know, that's like abdom- you know, abdominal pain, triage to the pelvic room. So it's in the, a small, cramped little room on a pelvic table, and I walk in, and there's this woman kind of, you know, 20s, and she's squirming around and can't stay, she can't stay still. She is obviously pregnant, like super pregnant. And I was like, madam, it looks like you're pregnant. It appears to be you're pregnant. She that, said, that can be a slippery yeah, slope like, there. You got to yes. be careful there. <laughs> and she said, oh, there's, there's no way I'm pregnant. And I said, mm, well, let's have a look. And so I took a look and I went to do her perineal exam. And all I see was big wad of baby hair, you know, very curly baby hair, but clearly baby hair. And so now I'm like, you're certainly pregnant. And you know, that patient went upstairs quicker than a watermelon seed. When you squeeze it between your thumb and forefinger, just off she went uh, for some other doctor to deliver that kid. So that's my, that's my baby fright story from, uh, from East Texas. But, you know, literally, I think that it's, I'm glad you guys are talking about this and that Chris Goodrich, actually one of our soups, brought this up as a topic we need to talk about because our firefighters, our first responders, uh, encounter a lot of these patients and are, are really more likely than I am in my clinical practice as the medical director at a big level one center. They're way more likely to do a field delivery than I am. I've been out 11 years and not delivered one, so I'm in, I'm in the same boat. I'm also uh, fairly terrified by this topic as well, so I think we're in the same boat there, but I think you're... Your story illustrates, number one, that our listeners out there are going to deliver babies, and so we need to have this discussion. And number two, I think it also illustrates, you know, we're going to start out with some core principles, some core physiologic principles of caring for the pregnant patient. But I think a core just care principle for females of childbearing age that uh, your your second story illustrates, not exactly, but but pretty well, is that 
females of childbearing age are pregnant until proven otherwise. Absolutely. As ER doctors, we trust no one. Yep. I mean, we trust no one. And I think that that, I mean, that's a very extreme example, <laughs> but I think that, you know, we'll talk about some, some first trimester, some third trimester bleeding topics here, but I think it's, it's reasonable to assume to put that, you know, to assume that that patient that's 21 and a female, is she pregnant or not? I think that should be a question that we ask while we're en route on those calls every single time, yeah, because then the, then the pregnancy complications that we talk about will be on your differential. So let's move into some core, core physiologic principles of caring for the pregnant patient. And before I go there, you know, the, I'm going to divide this up. This is again, a big topic and it's a little bit hard to, a little bit unwieldy, a little bit hard to manage, but we're going to start with pregnancy complications, pre-delivery. And then in the second part of the podcast, we're going to go into delivery and post-delivery complications. So when a female is pregnant, what, what kind of things happen? What, how does the body change? Well, first of all, pregnant patients are hyperdynamic. So they are by definition at higher risk for things like cerebral aneurysms and thoracic aortic dissections. So if a pregnant patient has a headache, it's a higher risk than if a non-pregnant patient does. If a pregnant patient has chest pain, it's higher risk than a non-pregnant patient. And we'll talk about the second reason that that's going to be higher risk. First of all, they're hyperdynamic and they're prone to thoracic dissections. So again, ripping, tearing, uh, pain that starts in the chest, radiates into the abdomen, down the back. But they're also hypercoagulable. And that makes sense, right? They're getting ready to deliver a baby, deliver a placenta. So they have to be ready to clot that. So they're going to be hypercoagulable. So they're going to be prone to both PE, DVT, so pulmonary embolus, deep venous thrombosis, and even venous sinus thrombosis, which is clot in the venous drainage system of the skull. So again, headaches, high risk, chest pains, high risk, calf pains, high risk. Pregnant patients are going to have increased intra-abdominal and increased thoracic pressure as they progress through the pregnancy. And that makes sense. They've got a growing baby and a growing uterus in their abdomen. How does that affect us from our assessment standpoint? You know, we think about trauma in pregnant patients, you think about uh, respiratory distress in pregnant patients, they're going to have quicker respiratory compromise because they've got increased intra-abdominal pressure, which is going to be translated to increased intrathoracic pressure, which is going to make their respiratory status more tenuous. Any pregnancy talk is going to be incomplete. One of the first things you're going to talk about is the left lateral decubitus position. And we all know that in traumatic pregnant patients, when we're transporting pregnant patients on the stretcher, that we should roll them into the left lateral decubitus position. Why is that? That's because that rolls the baby off of the inferior vena cava or the IVC, allows venous return to the heart, allows preload to not be compromised and can maintain a circulatory status. One thing though that's the same uh, in pregnant or non-pregnant, when you've got a, when you got a sick patient, the kind of the, uh, the basics hold true, right? IV access is gonna be really important. ABCs are gonna be really important. Um, these are things that, that are fundamentals throughout. In pregnant patients, oftentimes they do have less reserve. So, you know, you may need IV access earlier. You may need respiratory intervention earlier. But don't forget the IV access. Don't forget the ABCs, those kind of core foundations that we deal with, we deal with every day. Those are some of the core physiologic principles. Let's move on. First trimester vocabulary. I hate vocabulary words, but there's some things that we need to touch on just to make sure that we're all speaking the same language. Talk about pregnant patients. We talk about trimester. Dr. Dixon, what are we, what are we talking about? The first three months. That's first trimester. So second trimester, <laughs> second, second three, three months. months. And then the last trimester is going to be the, the final three. And why is that important? It seems fairly, fairly obvious. Trimester, 
nine month pregnancy, first three, middle three, second three. But our differential diagnosis and the and the possible disease processes that the patient can have varies between the first, second, and third trimester. So that, again, you know, fetal viability, I think it's a good example. Fetal viability occurs at, at 24 weeks. So if a patient is at eight weeks by by ultrasound or at 12 weeks by ultrasound, we know that it's impossible for the for the fetus to be viable. If the patient is gravid and due date is next week, the baby's going to be alive when it comes out, more than likely. As we were discussing and prepping for the podcast, one of the questions that we ask ourselves, and I think it's a difficult answer, is how do we know if, you know, once we delivered, how do we know if, if we have viability or not? And that's a tough one, and I don't even want to attempt to answer it. I think the best way to approach that is to assume that we have viability and let, let others sort that out. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. As I told my uh, pre-viability story from when I was a medic and, and encountered one of these patients and in a spontaneous delivery and went to open, foolishly opened an O-laryngoscope blade, and it was larger than the patient's head. Uh, I, I think I'm with Dr. Patrick. I wouldn't quibble about that. I would use your BLS skills. This is a back to the basics, right? Good airway management with bag valve mask, PD bag valve mask, and neonate bag valve mask, uh, proper CPR, those type of techniques, and focus on the basics. And the outcome of that patient? It was amazing. Uh, uh, smaller than the palm of my very large hands. The kid was uh, literally uh, barely bigger than my hand, uh, a foot presenter. Uh, and I frankly didn't, you know, the most stressful thing for me was then I had to take care of the mother and then we have to take care of this little baby. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do with this thing? And, you know, it, it did, did have a spontaneous uh, umbilical pulse, so I palpated umbilical pulse, uh, delivered it through and just did bag valve uh, oxygen and that child actually survived. Yeah. So again, 24 weeks is our cutoff. Don't make, don't make any hard and fast assumptions yeah. and let, let the folks at Delivering Hospital sort that out. Yeah. So let's move on into second part of some vocabulary words. When we talk about gravida, para, or GP, nomenclature, that's one that's tossed around quite a bit in the emergency department. Um, so gravida is, is how many times the patient has been pregnant. Para is how many times they've delivered. So the patient has three children and is pregnant with the fourth. That's G4, P3. Oftentimes, um, abortion is added on to the end. And again, when we talk about abortion from a medical sense, that's any loss of pregnancy. And that's often divided from either spontaneous abortion, which again is a, uh, a natural miscarriage, versus elective abortion, which is what it says it is, an elective abortion. Elective abortion. So if a patient has had two babies, one miscarriage and is pregnant, they are G4P2SAB1. Um, and again, that's not always super important, but again, talking about nomenclature that, you, that you'll hear, vocabulary that you'll hear, uh, just one I wanted to hit on quickly. When we talk about tubal pregnancy and ectopic pregnancy, those are the same thing. Again, an ectopic pregnancy is just a pregnancy that's implanted outside the uterus. And again, I guess they're not exactly the same thing. A tubal pregnancy is a type of ectopic pregnancy, but you can also have ovarian ectopic pregnancies. So you can have uh, pregnancies that implant on the ovary. You can also have intra-abdominal, uh, abdominal wall ectopic pregnancies. So any pregnancy that implants outside the uterus is an ectopic pregnancy. If that occurs in the fallopian tubes, that's a tubal pregnancy. And again, that's one we're going to talk about more and we worry about more as we move into the uh, next part of the discussion. And that is to kind of hit on the earliest part of pregnancy. That's the first trimester, the first three months. And what kind of things do we worry about in the first three months. And the biggest complaint we're going to see from pregnant patients during that first three months is going to be bleeding. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, pain and bleeding, the number one and two. 
And as Dr. Patrick reiterated earlier, you know, we always start with the ABCs, good, good mining of the basics, right? Airway, breathing, circulatory status, giving a good look at that, good examination of the patient, take a good OB history. So what does that mean? It's just the things that Dr. Patrick went over. What's their gravita? What's their para? What's their, their history of their present illness? If it's bleeding, how much have they bled and in what time frame? So how many, how many sanitary pads and what time frame? So I ask them how many, how many pads in the last 24 hours, how many in the last eight hours? So uh, an amount in a time frame. Also, when, when was their last menstrual period? Or many of these women will, will have had a previous uh, ultrasound. So ask them, hey, what was the, have you been, have you seen a doctor? Have you been given a, uh, a uh, have they dated your pregnancy? Have you had an ultrasound? Very important question, right? Because we're, one of the things that's on our differential here is a threatened miscarriage or a miscarriage for the bleeding and pain versus an ectopic pregnancy or pregnancy that's in the wrong place. So if it, you've had a patient that's had a uh, doctor's appointment and had an ultrasound with an intrauterine pregnancy verified, it, the former is way more likely. It's a miscarriage and not an ectopic pregnancy. That being said, anyone who presents with tachycardia, hypotension, any sign of hemodynamic instability uh, in the first trimester with abdominal complaints, especially abdominal pain or any type of vaginal bleeding, should be considered an ectopic until proven otherwise. And I'd almost go so far as to say any female of childbearing age that presents with abdominal pain, vaginal bleeding, tachycardia, and hypotension, pregnant or not, uh, with those vital sign findings is going to be ectopic until proven otherwise. Correct, because really. we, we've reviewed many, many cases here of patients with just that clinical presentation that did not know they were pregnant and were subsequently diagnosed with a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. Very good point. And ex- exam on these folks, oftentimes if they're a ruptured ectopic and they have hemoperitoneum, oftentimes their abdominal exam is going to be, you know, surgical, markedly abnormal, rigid, um, as far as feeling the uterus or palpating the uterus, remember that you're not going to palpate the uterus until at least, you know, reach the umbilicus by the textbook at 20 weeks. So in the first trimester, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to palpate the uterus uh, generally unless there's something, something abnormal or their dates are off. Um, So again, ask them about the amount of bleeding. It's going to, it's going to be helpful for us to know you start an hour ago or have you been bleeding for two days? Um, I think it's also Dr. Dixon mentioned, um, pads over 24 hours. I think it's also good to get an idea about uh, the level of, you know, how, how much those pads are soaked. Right. Um, I think some folks have a different tolerance for that. I, I can't really speak to that, but um, I know that I like to, you know, ask how, how long, how many of you soaked through? Cause I think that's, that's really what we probably worries us a little bit more. So that's first trimester bleeding, you know, and again, our differential is going to be in first trimester pain and bleeding, it's really three things are the main things we worry about, or at least the possible groupings. And that's going to be, again, ectopic pregnancy, miscarriage, and the bleeding in the first trimester can be normal. And sometimes it's tough to tease through those, but we want to be really worried when we've got bottle sign instability. Yeah, I think a great uh, point that you brought up, Casey, is and, and when we talk to patients, we may not know and they may not know early on that they're pregnant. Maybe they miss their period. So I always lead in with a question of any young woman of childbearing age uh, with abdominal complaints. I'll say, is there a chance you could be pregnant? And ask them when their last menstrual period is. So that takes us through most of the first trimester uh, high points. So let's fast forward and move later in the pregnancy to the third trimester. And even though we're later, much later into the pregnancy, the baby's larger, the intra-abdominal pressure is higher, and all the things we're going to talk about that are different coming up, we still need to approach these patients 
from an initial assess assessment standpoint, just like the first trimester patients. And that's going to be with good ABCs, uh, good IV access, and really don't forget those foundational uh, fundamental aspects of care. But with, with the uterus growing, the fetus growing, we do need to remember the left lateral decubitus position and get, get the baby off the IVC. Um, really, whether it's a trauma complaint or a non-trauma complaint, we want to make sure that we optimize um, circulatory status. So get, get, get the baby off the IVC. Um, you know, the big worry complaint in these folks is going to be bleeding in the, in the third trimester. And the important key there is going to be, is it painless or is it painful? Um, obviously, trauma is going to be concerning, but we're talking about non-traumatic bleeding here um, for, for discussion's sake. And so if we have uh, painless bleeding, we want to think about placenta previa, which that's where the placenta implants over the cervix versus painful vaginal bleeding in the third trimester, and that's going to be placental abruption where the placenta separates away from the uterus. Um, if, tra if trauma is present and they have painful uh, vaginal bleeding, we need to consider traumatic uterine rupture as well. Again, vitals and abdominal exam are going to be key. In a patient in the third trimester, generally you're going to be able to palpate the uterus, so that should give us a little more information. And the treatment for these conditions, previa, abruption, and traumatic uterine rupture is going to be delivery. We want to make sure we get access. We want to make sure we uh, resuscitate both respiratory-wise, circulatory-wise, as we know how, and transport them as quickly as possible. So first trimester bleeding, ectopic versus miscarriage, third trimester bleeding, placenta previa versus placental abruption. Yeah, and, I'd, and I'd add that the third one in there would be for third trimester would be delivery. Maybe maybe early labor or, or labor. Some of these women uh, have very little access to prenatal care and may the first encounter they have with a healthcare provider may be with uh, you. Yeah, and I think that's something, probably a good point that could have made a little earlier is that in, in general, I think the higher risk patients throughout this discussion, whether it's delivery, first trimester, third trimester, it's always going to be a higher risk situation and a situation where we can, can expect the unexpected when we don't have prenatal care. I think that's, exactly you know, right. I think it's something that should definitely perk up, perk up our antenna. So let's talk about some pregnancy specific complications some things that we're going to see in pregnant patients. And we talked about some earlier pulmonary embolus, deep vein thrombosis, clotting disorders are going to be more common in pregnant patients. Uh, thoracic dissection, cerebral aneurysms are going to be more common in pregnant patients because they're hyperdynamic and they're hypercoagulable. But the other large, I guess, grouping of uh, pregnancy complications are going to be preeclampsia and eclampsia. So uh, the difference there, again, preeclampsia is going to be, and the definition has changed since I trained. So I want to be clear and get this right. Preeclamptics pre present with headache, nausea and vomiting, uh, hypertension, lower extremity edema, uh, abdominal pain, right upper quadrant pain classically. But the diagnostic criteria are, again, different than when I learned them. And it requires a blood pressure of 140 over 90 or greater, plus proteinuria, low platelets, LFT elevation, pulmonary edema, renal insufficiency, or severe headache. So one of those things. It used to, in, it used to include a requirement for proteinuria, but now it does not include that requirement. So if a patient is hypertensive and symptomatic in any way, again, billing protein in their urine, low platelets, LFT elevation, pulmonary edema, renal insufficiency, or headache. So if a patient's 150 over 70 and they have a headache, they're preeclamptic by definition. A little bit less stringent than, than again, when I train. So it makes it, it, makes it a little, little, more, uh, little more likely, and we need to really keep, keep our ears and eyes open. Um, and 
when do we progress into eclampsia? What makes somebody go from preeclampsia to eclampsia by definition? And that's the presence of seizure. So if a patient has a blood pressure of 160 over 80 and a headache and they seize en route, they've gone from being a preeclamptic to eclamptic. I didn't hit very much on the pathophysiology behind preeclampsia and eclampsia because to be honest, it's not terribly well known. It's a murky waters. Needless to say that it's a vasoconstrictive pathophysiology of of the, or, or excuse me, a, a disorder of the uterus and placenta, but we really don't have a clear, clean-cut idea of what exactly causes preeclampsia and eclampsia. But what we do know is that it's it's deadly. Two percent mortality for eclampsia. And don't forget, we'll talk about delivery and postpartum topics in the second section. But eclampsia and preeclampsia can occur postpartum, most often within the first week after delivery, but even longer at times. Um, and it's actually more often postpartum. Uh, treatment for eclampsia and preeclampsia in our MCHD protocol is magnesium uh, and obviously delivery in the third trimester. Seizures occur, we want to start with magnesium, and if they continue, we can progress to benzos. So let me lead in with a question here. Sure. So what would we do? What would your recommendation be if we, a uh, pregnant female, uh, obviously third trimester, uterus above the umbilicus, so greater than 20-week pregnancy, presents with a seizure to us. Should we assume that that's an eclamptic seizure? I think we should assume any pregnant patient seizing is an eclamptic seizure and get magnesium on board as soon as possible. I think I would have a very short lease if they continue seizing to add benzos. But I think the big mistake that we make is assuming that it's not preeclampsia or, excuse me, not eclampsia and withholding magnesium when that's, that's going to be our drug of choice, treatment of choice, and then get them to the hospital, obviously, as soon as possible and get the baby delivered. So to kind of reiterate what uh, Dr. Patrick said, a lot of times, you know, we were throwing out terms of proteinuria and different platelet counts and things that we're clearly not going to know in the field. So how are these patients going to look to, to you and I when we see them in the street? They're going to be calling for some complaint. Um, so usually it's some type of pain complaint. So as he said, they may have headache. They may have abdominal pain. They may have generalized edema that's worse. They'll, they'll call for that reason, and they'll have a blood pressure of greater than 140 over 90. So if they have 140 over 90, their third trimester pregnancy, and they have one of these complaints, abdominal pain, headache, or um, some type of pulmonary edema or generalized body edema, you assume preeclampsia. Yeah, and- Again, we're going to transport these folks, and you know our treatment algorithm in route is not going to be terribly complicated, but I think it's a situation where we really need to have, again, have our focus on the fact that they are at high risk for complication. They're at high risk for you know decompensation, and if they do seize, we need to know exactly where that mag drawer is and kind of have that already pre-planned in our mind um, because they are, by definition, preeclampsia. Route. Um, and I think it's a good spot to mention, that, you know, don't forget that pregnant patients get normal pathology as well. So every pregnant patient isn't an ectopic. Every pregnant patient with abdominal pain is not preeclampsia. It can be uh, gallstones. It can be cholecystitis. It can be appendicitis. Um, so there are other uh, diagnoses on the list that's possible. But again, I think there are certain ones that we need to have on the top of our list so we can be ready. Again, ectopic pregnancy is, is the big one in early pregnancy. So if a patient presents with pain and bleeding and they're tachycardic hypotensive, it's an ectopic until proven otherwise. In third trimester, if they're bleeding, think about pain versus no pain and think about abruption and placenta previa 
if there's no pain, abruption if there is pain. And then finally, if they're hypertensive and they have any complaint, again, we're not, like Dr. Dixon said, we're not going to get the labs, the urinalysis in route, obviously. But if they've got a headache, if they've got abdominal pain, if they've got uh, signs of respiratory distress, pulmonary edema, or body edema, assume they're preeclamptic and, and be ready for that seizure if it occurs. And when it does, know that it's progressed to eclampsia and that mags are going to be our treatment of choice. And again, wrapping up, I think it's a good spot to lead into the wrap-up. Pregnant patients are always high risk. So they're always going to be ones that we want to include a little longer differential. Be wary of because they have they have complications that, that are specific to uh, their pathophysiology and ones that can be pretty scary if we're not ready for them. But again, as always, fall back on your ABCs, your IV, your O2, your monitor, ASAP, right? Get, get that stuff get that stuff on board and, and settled and, and started quickly. And remember, keep patients in their, less, in their left lateral decubitus position as they progress through pregnancy. Get the baby off the IVC. And remember, MAG is our drug of choice for eclampsia. If that patient seizes in route, start with MAG. If you need to move to benzos, you can. But remember, MAG is our drug of choice. So that wraps us up for part one of our back to basics or B2B pre-hospital care of the pregnant patient. We'll be back for part two a little later on. I'd like to thank Dr. Dixon for joining me and helping me out in this topic that scares the bejesus out of both of us. Thanks for Kevin for working the board for us today. If you have questions or comments, as always, shoot us an email and we'll look forward to talking to you guys soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.